Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, surviving. <laughs> exactly. Like, like, like us in Ireland, you know, we're just, we're, we're hanging in there as the men's. Yeah. 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 Stuff. Yeah, I think we're we're looking good at the moment, isn't it, Tal? Um, so are you okay to get started, or I'm uh, already great stuff. So yeah, great stuff. Yeah, it was looking good. Um, and uh, is this live to tape, or are you going to record and then edit it? Yeah, it's it's, it's going to be a pre, it's going to be a pre-record, and then like um then basically. Like um yeah the, I'll I'll edit it then like for the radio and then I'm gonna actually podcast the full version of the interview then afterwards. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah, you know. So um so today I'm talking with Tal Ben Shaher. He's a American teacher and writer in the areas of positive psychology and leadership. Good afternoon, Tal. Good afternoon, Michael. Great to be on your show. Yes, yeah, same to you. And my, my name is is pronounced Mihal. 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 Yeah. Fine. So tell me, Tal, like, who are you and what do you do? Uh, well, I uh, uh, I teach positive psychology, which is the science of happiness. Uh, I'm also a researcher and and a writer. Um, but first and foremost, you know, I'm uh, a consumer of the field of positive psychology. Meaning, uh, I draw on the the research from the field, apply it uh, to my life, and then teach it to others. And tell me, tell like, how come you got into this type of work? Well, I I got into it for for, for personal reasons. Um, at the age of uh, twenty three, I was a student, undergraduate student at Harvard, studying computer science. And I found myself you know, doing very well academically. I was doing well in athletics. I played squash. Um, things socially were going well. And yet I was extremely unhappy. And it didn't make sense to me because, you know, I looked at my life from the outside and things looked great. But from the inside, it, it just didn't feel that way. And uh, I remember one very cold Boston morning, uh, I got up and went to my academic advisor and told her that I'm switching course. And she said, what to? And I said, well, I'm leaving computer science and moving over to philosophy and psychology. And she said, why? And I said, because I have two questions. One question is, why aren't I happy? Second question, how can I become happier? And it's with these two questions that I then went into this field, you know, got my, eventually got my PhD there and, uh, and, and started to teach. And you mentioned that you weren't happy when you were studying in college. Why was that? Well, in... Then I didn't know, but in retrospect, it was because the emphasis was uh, was really on the wrong things. Uh, I, I, I focused primarily on, you know, how can I get to the next stage, or how can I uh, now that I've gotten into a, a good school, how can I get, you know, top grades? And if I get top grades, how can I get the next, you know, the the right job? And it was always about the next thing. It was always about the external um, uh, accomplishments rather than on, you know, uh, the present, the here and now, and, and focusing on the more intrinsic, um, valuable things such as relationships, such as uh, um, uh, uh, expressing gratitude and savoring uh, what I already have, rather than taking it for granted and always thinking about the next step. 
And where do you think that came from? You know, was it like part of your conditioning or was it learned from Perez? Well, I, I think a lot of it is about uh, conditioning. You know, our, our culture very much uh, um, not just emphasizes but celebrates uh, success. And, but it doesn't celebrate success for a long time. You know, you celebrate a little bit and then you move on to the next thing. Uh, so, so there's very little savoring. There is very little appreciation of the moment. And and today, more and more so, there's less emphasis on relationships, which are you know, the number one, the number one predictor of well-being. And I know your classes on positive psychology were very successful in Harvard University. Tell, like, why do you think that was? Um, so the, the class started off very small. I, my my first year, the first year I taught, I had six students, and then it, it literally mushroomed. You know, the year after was three hundred. The, the year after that was you know, close to nine hundred, and it was because students were telling their friends, their roommates, that this class actually changed their lives for the better. And uh, when, you know, when the students hear that, they they, they became curious and and they started um, you know flocking in, and. Um, so, so that's one reason. The second reason is because, you know, for many years, this whole area of uh, of life flourishing, of happiness, uh, of uh, um, of success, has really been dominated by the self help movement. You know, so what do we have in the self help movement? We have, uh, um, you know, thousands of books coming out. Uh, you know, every year, uh, the books are interesting. The the the, the writers or speakers are very charismatic and accessible, but they overpromise and underdeliver very often. So they promise you the five steps to happiness, or the three things you need to do in order to lead the you know the the, the great life, or the secret of uh, flourishing. Um, overpromise, underdeliver. On the other hand, for years you had academia with with great studies and research, rigorous. Uh, you know, sound, things that work, but, but not accessible. You know, most people don't go out and read the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, um, even though there are, you know, some great stuff there. And what positive psychology does as a field is it creates a bridge between Ivory Tower, the university, and Main Street, you know, the, the stuff that's accessible. So it doesn't just offer, uh, you know, easy, you know, five-step solution to... to to, to unhappiness. It provides, you know, real, concrete, uh, actionable, and, and researched, evidence-based uh, advice. And you mentioned there as well, Tal, that, you know, when some of the students took your course in Harvard University, that it changed their lives. Like, in what way did it change their yeah, lives? So, in, in various ways. One way, which uh, probably the most common, is that they started to think about what they want to do with their lives in, in a different way, through a different lens. So, instead of uh, asking the question, okay, so what will, you know, and, and again, this question doesn't have to be explicit. It can be explicit or implicit. But instead of asking, um, you know, what what will yield the most accolades or what should I do? They, they started to ask, you know, what do I really want to do with my life? Um, what's my either, you know, a big question would be, what's my calling? What's my purpose? Or what would, would, would where would I feel more most fulfilled? And the answer to that is, is very often different than... Um, than what they conventionally would do or, you know, what they would do if they just, you know, followed the, the herd. 
Um, so many, many, many students, instead of going to, uh, you know, the usual say to, you know, whether it's banking or consulting or, or law, they, you know, they would choose teaching. And there were also students who would have otherwise gone to teach because they thought you know, this is what they should do, but, but decided, hey, actually what I'm really interested in is banking. So, you know, it could work both ways, but it was just, you know, different question, more deeper thinking about what's really meaningful to me. So that's one thing. The other thing, um, uh, students became a lot more active. So one of the things that I that I talk about a lot is that regular physical exercise has the the same effect, psychologically speaking, as our most powerful psychiatric medication. It actually works in the same way. You know, it releases norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, your feel good chemicals in the brain, um, and exercising regularly is is critical to to fulfilling our potential for well being, physical of course, but also psychological. Another thing that they um, that they started to pay a lot more attention to was their relationships, whether it was their relationships in college with their uh, roommates or teammates or friends, uh, as well as at home with their you know parents or siblings or boyfriend or girlfriend. So a lot more emphasis realizing that um, this is the the number one generator of what I call the ultimate currency, the currency of happiness. And tell what do you think is one of the root causes of unhappiness? Well, in, in today's world, it's, it's different from what it was in the past. Um, so, you know, when I say today's world, it's important to, you know, to separate it into, you know, the places where basic needs are met versus places where, there are, where they aren't. And unfortunately, there are many such places. So where there is a, a poverty very difficult to experience happiness, whether, you know, poverty in, in the sense of not even having enough uh, um, food uh, and, and shelter, sufficient shelter. So, you know, when basic needs aren't met, that, of course, affects happiness, leading to unhappiness. Uh, similarly, in, uh, you know, where there isn't basic safety, you know, in war zones uh, around the world, obviously, happiness levels are, uh, uh, are affected negatively. Um, but in 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 places where there is where where the basic needs are met where there is basic safety um there is actually a lot of unhappiness and and the reason for that unhappiness a is because we we do not put enough emphasis on relationships so there's a lot more emphasis today on uh, on on career success on material success and um that comes at at, at, a, at a cost. And uh, second, people are a lot less active, physically active, than they were in the past. You know, in the past, we had no choice. So, you know, if we wanted food, we had to go hunt or gather. Uh, today, you know, we, we pick up the phone or, uh, you know, and, 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 or, or go on the web and there's delivery. And most of our work today is done uh, in front of the screen or in, in meetings with, with people. There isn't enough physical uh, activity inherent in our, in our day to day. And there's a price for that. And do you think, you know, with the advances of technology, say like with Facebook and Twitter and all these other platforms, you think that's having an impact? on? Uh, there's things? no question. And th there's already a lot of data actually showing just what kind of impact it has. So let, let, let me give you just a couple of examples. So um, what, one of the best predictors of depression is loneliness. And there is actually a direct correlation uh, between the amount of time we spend in front of a screen and loneliness. 
Um, now, having 1,000 friends on Facebook is no substitute for that one BFF, you know, one be best friend which, who, who, who we meet face to face. Um, and, um, and, 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 and many of us, many people, you know, especially the, the, you know, the younger generation, um, do see um, virtual friends as substitutes for, uh, for real friends. They're not. And then even when many people meet and uh, supposedly face-to-face, -face, they're actually uh, you know, texting. They're, they're looking at their, their smartphones instead of having those uh, real interactions. And we must have those real interactions. Um, also because of the loneliness factor, but there's another factor involved here, and that is uh, empathy. There's, there's research showing that levels of empathy today are a lot lower than they were even 20 years ago. And the reason why levels of empathy have gone down is because we have less face-to-face -face interactions. You know, empathy is, um, is, is formed, is created when we play together in the sandbox, when we, you know, we fight and we make up, when we uh, see another person's reactions to something that we said, whether it's tears or, or laughter. So um, we need those real interactions to cultivate empathy and, and, and if empathy goes down that, that that's a real problem because empathy is the foundation of, uh, of morality, it's the foundation of a healthy society, of healthy relationships. Uh, we can't afford to lose that and therefore you know for, for both for, for happiness uh, as well as for morality we need to spend a lot more time uh, w with people. Now I'm not saying that, that technology is, is bad. You know, we're having this conversation thanks to technology. You know, thanks to technology, I've uh, reconnected with uh, someone whom I haven't seen since the age of 12. who was, you know, my best friend in elementary school. So there are great things happening uh, as a result of technology. You know, my sister found her, the love of her life through, through technology on, you know, a dating site. So, you know, there are great things happening with, with, uh, as a result of technology but not if it comes at the expense of of real relationships. Yeah, and it's probably all a matter of balance as well. Like, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's ultimately, it's balance, uh, and it's um, perhaps more specifically, it's about moderation. Um, you know, Aristotle 2,400 years ago talked about the, uh, you know, the importance of moderation to a, to a full and fulfilling life. It's, uh, it was relevant then, it's, probably even more relevant today when excesses are just more accessible. And it seems like in comparison to now, in comparison to say 30 or 40 years ago, life seems a bit more complex as well. Would that be true? Yeah, more, more complex and more, um, um, more dense, meaning in the past, there was more air, so to speak, uh, between activities. So, you know, I, I would uh, I would be at home, and then I would go to work. And you know, while I go to work, I'm 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 in the car, you know, whatever, just uh, daydreaming. Whereas now, I may be in the car, but I'm on the phone, working. Um, or uh, you know, you, you came home at night, and and in the past, and you you had a nice dinner with your uh, your family, and that's what you did. Whereas today. You may still have dinner, but you're on the phone at the same time, or the TV may be on, and there's noise, and, and there are more distractions. So there's, there's less, less, um, less space 
between activities. And also in terms of the activities that we do, we were doing a lot more than we did in any given time. You know, there's much more multitasking today, which, you know, sometimes is good, but, but too much of it, again, the, the moderation element, too much of it is not good. And tell like what you think is like one of the number one predictors of happiness in a person's life. Well, the, the number one is relationships. So you look at um, the happiest countries in the world, and you look at the, the you know the countries that regularly appear on the you know the so to speak top ten, uh, and, there, and there and there are many many studies. So the countries that consistently appear in the top are countries like uh, uh, Denmark, countries like uh, the Netherlands, uh, Israel. Australia, Colombia, Costa Rica. Now, some of these countries, you know, you can you can basically could have maybe guessed that that, that they would have been uh, on the top. But there are other countries that you wouldn't have uh, predicted that they were in the top. You know, countries like Israel or countries like uh, Colombia. Why, why are they there? So when they looked for the common characteristic among these countries, um, th they found just one. And one alone beyond, beyond basic needs met. So you won't find countries that are among the happiest if uh, they're, they, they suffer from poverty or from conflict. But once basic needs are met, there is just one predictor that distinguishes these happiest countries in the world, and that's social relationships. So, you know, you look at Israel, for example, a lot of emphasis on, uh, on, on family relationships, uh, a lot of emphasis on friendships. And so despite the hardships, people are on average uh, happier than, than most other countries in the world. You look at countries like, uh, like Denmark, 92% uh, 92 of uh, Danes belong to some uh, social club. You know, it could be a, you know, a club where they play cards together or a club where they do sports together, but they belong to some social club. 92% of the population, which is a lot higher than any other country in the world. And that explains their happiness. That's very interesting. And, and how important is the time we spend in regard to happiness? You mean the kind of time that we spend? Exactly, yes. Uh, that, that, that's critical. You know, if I spend uh, two hours with my family, but during those two hours, you know, we're mostly speaking on the phone or, or texting or, or emailing, that doesn't have the the same value. It has to be you know real time. So even if it's half hour, you know it's half hour when we're when we're really together. So let let me share with you a study. This was done by uh, Daniel Kahneman, who's a Nobel uh, Prize winner in economics, but actually a psychologist. So he did research trying to understand the emotional experiences of women throughout the day. Now these were uh, professional women in Europe and in uh, North America. And he wanted to understand their emotional experiences when they were at work, when they were with their uh, partner, when they were with their kids, when they were shopping, when they were having lunch, whatever, you know, their emotional experiences during the day. The most surprising result of his study was that these women did not particularly enjoy spending time with their kids. Now, this was very surprising to him, so, you know, he probed uh, further, deeper, and it wasn't that these women did not love their kids. I mean, for most of these women, uh, their kids were the most important, meaningful uh, part of their lives. What was it then? It was that when these women were with their kids, they weren't really with their kids. 
meaning they were physically there, but at the same time they were perhaps texting or talking on the phone or uh, emailing or thinking about what they did earlier at work or what they have to do later. So each one of these activities individually, discreetly, may have been wonderful for them. But when all these activities came together, um, it just didn't work. It was too much of a good thing. You know, you can think about an analogy of listening to your favorite piece of music with your eyes closed and then, uh, you know, rating it on, on a scale of 1 to 10 and you give it a 10 and then you listen to your second most favorite piece of music and you rate it on a scale of 1 to 10 and you give it a 9. And then for your optimal experience, you take these two pieces and you play them together. And you, you don't have a 19, you don't even have a 10, you don't have a 5, it's noise. And that's modern life today. You know, when we try to do so many things together, whether it's listening to two pieces of music or spending time with our kids and, um, and working and eating and thinking about what we need to do later, too much, too much overload. So when we spend time, you know, when I spend time with my kids, phone is off. When we're eating, we don't answer the phone. You know, if, if a kid is out, then yes, the phone is on. Uh, at work, the same. I have time when I just write. The Facebook is not on and, uh, and, and email is not on. It's, very, it's, it's critical for our well-being and for our long-term success to be able to compartmentalize, to, uh, to create what I've come to call uh, islands of sanity throughout our day when we are able to focus on just that one thing that we're doing. Not all day, um, that's not possible. We need to multitask sometimes, but for at least uh, some of the day, an hour or two a day. And tell, tell me about the importance of, say, being authentic in regard to creating happiness. Yeah, so authenticity is critical on many levels. You know, Gandhi said um, you know, 70 years ago, um, be the change you want to see in the world. You know, if we want to bring about change uh, in uh, whether it's as a teacher, whether it's as a parent, whether it's as a, a leader at work or a community uh, leader, we need to first uh, lead by example. We want to be the the the, um, the change that we're looking for in the world. That and that means essentially being authentic, being being real. You know, saying one thing and then acting accordingly. Um, you know, ultimately, people do what we do, not what we say. So, you know, I can uh, at work talk about the importance of uh, integrity, or I can talk about the importance of, uh, you know, of hard work and dedication. But if I don't act that way, the people working with me or for me are gonna follow my lead, my behavior, not my words. Um, so that's one area. If we want to be, you know, successful and effective, authenticity is absolutely critical. Um, but it's not just for success, it's also for well-being, for happiness. You know, the, um, the, um, I, I wrote my, 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 my senior thesis, my research was on the idea that honesty pays, that we pay a high psychological and emotional price for being dishonest or, or immoral in general. So we have an innate mechanism, uh, many uh, philosophers uh, British philosophers mostly called it the moral sense, and uh, and it's innate. And this this innate sense is the one that leads us to actually want to be moral, want to be uh, uh, honest, want to act with integrity. And if we don't, if we violate our internal compass, uh, we we pay a price for it. And tell how do we know we're authentic? 
Uh, you know, it's 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 a great question because you know even people who who lie and you ask them usually would say, yeah, you know, we're we're pretty honest. Yeah, sometimes we may have to bend the rules a little bit, but 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 overall, we are authentic. So, um, you know, so so being enough, there isn't an innate mechanism that consciously would tell us that we're being inauthentic, but there is a subconscious mechanism. So very often. Um, you, you would see people who, if you ask them, you know, do you have integrity or are you living a life of integrity? You know, they would say yes, and they wouldn't be lying, um, or rather they wouldn't be consciously or, or, or intentionally lying, but they still wouldn't lead uh, a full and fulfilling life, a, a happy life. And very often the, our emotions are the ones that would, would tell us um, whether we're leading a life of integrity. So, you know, I mentioned earlier and I talked about how uh, many of my students ended up changing their career path as a result of the course. And they did it because they felt or they realized like they were not leading an authentic life um, when they were going into um, an, an area that, you know, others prescribed for them. Um, and the price that they pay was in terms of their, their happy. They were, they were unhappy doing what was inauthentic to them. Whereas once they, they, they changed their, their path, their, their happiness levels uh, went up significantly. So our emotions, very, very often uh, uh, unhappiness is a product, an outcome of, uh, of leading an inauthentic life. And what do you mean by our emotions? Like, are they the telltale signs or, or what? Yeah, so, you know, m most people um, know whether or not they're, um, they're happy. So, you know, there's a lot of research showing that um, our self-reports, what, what we say, how happy we are, actually correlates very highly with brain scans and brain scans that show how happy we, we, we actually are, or how unhappy we are. So, so, so generally, I know, you know, today was a good day. You know, the, the last week, there have been, you know, many downs, you know, or, or it's been great. You know, we, we generally can tell how, how we're doing. And um, when, we, when, when we, you know, sit down and take time to reflect on it, to write about it, to talk to our best friend about it, or, or, or a therapist, we usually can tell how we're doing and whether or not we can do better. And I know you mentioned there, I think in one of your books, Tal, that I read that that a lot of us can have an inability to show or express our emotions. Like, mm. How or why does that happen and, and how does that relate to happiness? Yeah, so, um, you know, v v very often we um we suppress emotions so if if i can uh, you know give an example very often men uh, would suppress um uh, vulnerability uh, women too but men men do it more often uh, on the other hand uh, women more often than men would suppress their uh, you know their anger and uh, when we suppress emotions, and again, I'm not talking about wearing our heart on our sleeves. I'm not talking about, all right, if I'm angry, I'll go out to the street and just scream out. Or, uh, you know, if I'm uh, feeling sad and vulnerable, you know, I go out uh, in, you know, into the uh, main hall of my, my office building and start to cry. Um, but, but what I'm talking about is expressing emotions, whether it's in writing, whether it's talking uh, about it to, to my best friend, and being, being real about our, our emotions, also to ourselves, 
not suppressing it because when we suppress emotions, we pay a high psychological and emotional price. There's, you see, there's a paradox here. When I suppress um, uh, anger, actually, ultimately, I'm going to be a lot more angry. Uh, if I suppress sadness, ultimately, I'm going to be a lot sadder. Um, whereas if I express these emotions and... Uh, Again, either in writing or in, uh, in, in, in talking about it or, uh, or, or shedding tears or whatever my you know, favorite way of expressing emotions is, um, these emotions paradoxically actually weaken rather than strengthen. And how come we have a tendency to resist expressing these emotions? Well, um, a lot of it has to do with with, with our um, with our culture, and 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 I must, and 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 that's pervasive in the East and the West. So it really is uh, uh, almost universal, where we see it as you know a sign of weakness if we uh, shed a tear, or we see it as a sign of uh, you know um, um, you know non-feminine behavior if uh, you know if uh, if we get angry, and. Um, and, and painful emotions, you know, they're called negative emotions, but you know, I don't like to put a value judgment there, and therefore I'm calling them. These painful emotions uh, have gotten a, a bad reputation. You know, I, I, I think about it in the context of the law of gravity. You know, the law of gravity is, is part of physical nature. You know, no, no one says, uh, you know, I, I just don't want to deal with this law of gravity. I've had it with the law of gravity. You know, we don't say it and we don't act accordingly. And yet, when it comes to painful emotions, you know, we often say, you know, I don't want to be angry, or I don't want to be sad, or I don't want to feel envy, or I don't want to, um, you know, ex uh, be disappointed or anxious. But that's like saying, you know, I don't want the law of gravity. These emotions are natural. They're a part of being alive. You know, I, th th there are only two kinds of people who do not experience painful emotions, uh, such as anger or disappointment or envy or sadness. The two kinds of people who do not experience these emotions are A, the psychopaths, and B, dead people. So if we experience these emotions, it's actually a good sign. It means, you know, we're not a psychopath and we're alive. Good place to start. Um, and again, the paradox is that when we suppress these emotions, when we don't give ourselves the permission to be human, uh, these emotions only intensify. And I know you talk about unconditional acceptance as well, Tal. Can you explain to me a little bit about sure. this? Sure. I, um, I talk a lot about unconditional acceptance for our emotions. You know, just like we have, and again, we don't even need to, to talk about it or think about it. We have unconditional acceptance for the law of gravity. We have unconditional acceptance for, uh, uh, for the fact that, you know, the, the, uh, the sun rises in the morning and, and goes down uh, in, in the evening. So, you know, we, we accept that. We don't argue with that fact. We don't reject it. Uh, and yet we argue and reject the fact that we sometimes experience painful emotions. They are as much part of uh, nature as the law of gravity is part of nature. And yet we, we accept the law of gravity unconditionally and we so often reject painful emotions. We need to get to a stage where we unconditionally accept uh, painful emotions just as we unconditionally accept the, uh, the laws of nature, of physical nature. And is there a way that we can create that unconditional acceptance? Yeah, so one way to create it is just to become more conscious, more aware of it, you know, so... Um, you know, I often, when uh, when I go through difficult periods, I simply remind myself, you know, permission to be human, 
you know, just just go through it. You you know, you're you're not a psychopath and you're not dead. Yay, you know, we we start from there. Um, so so one thing is reminder. Another another terrific technique is um, is meditation. So there's a lot of research today over the last thirty years, in fact, on the on the benefits of uh, you know just sitting down, eyes closed, and focusing on the breath going in and out. And um, there's um, uh, what the research is showing that if we do it on a regular basis, and when I say regular, you know, even ten minutes a day, um, our brain actually begins to form new neural pathways. It begins to change, becoming a lot more resilient, a lot more accepting. And, uh, uh, and and we become a lot happier as as a result. So so meditation is is one of them. And again, meditation can be breath meditation, or it can be listening to your favorite music with your eyes closed and focused for for ten minutes a day, uh, or it can be you know yoga or, or or tai chi. So that that that's one way of becoming more accepting. Another way of becoming uh, more accepting is writing down. Because what I'm doing when I when I write down. Uh, in a journal, and you know, if the journal is for my eyes only, and I really write what I'm feeling, what I'm going through, essentially, I'm acknowledging my emotions, and that is a form of acceptance. So there's a lot of research showing that you know, sitting down and writing for uh, even for you know, 15 minutes on four consecutive days, so a total of one hour, and writing about our most difficult experiences. Um, it goes a long way, long way in uh, in helping us be happier, less anxious, uh, more sociable, and physically healthier. So using a journal is great. Um, and then if we can afford it, to, to talk to someone, whether it's a professional therapist or a, a best friend. Because when we, again, when we talk about something and we're authentic, we're real, we're uh, acknowledging our, our painful emotions, we're essentially accepting them rather than rejecting them. And as you know, Tal, stress is a very common word in our society nowadays. And what would be your own definition of the word stress? Uh, well, stre- stress is essentially when we're uh, uh, overwhelmed, when we experience um, our um, uh, our our activities as 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 too much. When we when we don't think we have the internal or external resources to 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 handle the challenges of life. Now, now, there's a lot of research on stress, obviously, no big surprise. Um, And uh, there are a lot of surprising findings in this area. And and the most surprising finding, to my mind, is that um, while most people think stress is bad for us, uh, potentially, potentially it's not. And I'm saying potentially because stress can be bad. You know, stress is associated with uh, chronic disease. Stress is associated with... uh, um, with a weak immune system, uh, and stress is associated with, with unhappiness. However, not in all cases. When stress is coupled with recovery, then stress actually is potentially good for us. Um, and l- l- let me give you an, an analogy. You know, you go to the gym, you stress your muscles. And um, is that a bad thing? Not at all. It's actually a good thing. You know, you you stress your muscles, you lift weights, and 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 uh, a minute later you stress your muscles uh, again. You lift more weights, and two days later you go to the gym again, and you lift more weights, and it's great. You become stronger that way. Um, the problem in the gym begins when you're uh, stressing your muscles, and a minute later you stress more muscles, and two minutes later you do it again, and the next day you're in the gym again, and on and on and on. That's when you get injured. 
that's when you get weaker rather than stronger. But the problem is not the stress. Um, rather, the problem is the lack of recovery. Uh, whether it's in the gym or in uh, you know the gym of life, so it's uh, it's fine to experience stress. We're we're good at dealing with stress. We've always experienced stress throughout our you know history. The difference today, 21st century, is that we don't have enough time for recovery because we're constantly on, whether it's on the phone or whether it's in front of a, a screen and, and doing so many things together. We need recovery, more recovery in our life. And recovery can come in the form of a, you know, a nice quiet dinner without the phone on and, uh, and email. Um, uh, recovery can come in the form of meditation. Recovery can come in the form of uh, you know, going to the gym and exercising. Or recovery can, can, can be in the form of just uh, you know, hanging out and going for a walk with our, um, w- with our dog. Whatever it is, you know, but, but we, need, um, we need recovery throughout the day. And that's when we can deal with stress. And that's when stress can actually become enhancing, helpful, rather than harmful and detrimental. And are there levels of stress which are harmful for us? Yeah, sure. You know, you, you take it to the extreme and, and absolutely, you know, extreme stress would would be a trauma. Um, you know, someone, again, I'm going back to, a, you know, a war zone or someone who experiences or observes a crime. That's very stressful. Again, it's something that, um, at least on the subconscious conscious level, I do not believe that I have the capacity to handle. That's why I experience the stress. And if you take it to the extreme, it can become a, a traumatic uh, stress that uh, that we, even if not traumatic, but that we go through for a long period of time without recovery, um, can certainly lead to uh, to to unhappy outcomes emotionally, physically, as well. And say if a person is very passionate about something, like say in a work situation in regard to their work, is it still possible for them to be stressed? It, it is possible to be stressed. So, you know, it's, you know, chocolate is great, but, you know, 10 packs of chocolate is not so great. Um, doing what you're passionate about and, and love is, is fantastic, but it's possible to overdo it. Um, you know, you see it again, I, if I go to the physical analogy, you know, you see athletes who are very passionate about their sports and they play, you know, six hours every day, six or seven days a week um, and they love it. But then they, they, they eventually, um, they burn out, they, they over, over train and they, they, they eventually get injured. Similarly on the psychological level, you know, if I do too much uh, of something without recovery, without enough sleep, which is a very important form of recovery, without a day off, which is a very important uh, form of recovery, without ever taking a a vacation, Um, then even if I am doing something which I'm very passionate about and love, uh, I will eventually pay pay a price. Now, needless to say, I will have a lot more energy and will be able to sustain um, uh, much more work if I'm passionate about something and, uh, and, uh, and I'll be able to handle more. Uh, but still, even there, there is a limit. And how important is breathing as a way to reduce stress? Yeah, you know, it, it all starts with breathing, because uh, within 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 three or four deep breaths, I can shift my 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 mind, my consciousness, from being uh, in a stressed or fight or flight place um, to uh, to a much calmer what what 
Herbert Benson calls the relaxation response. Um, and very often, you know, three or four deep breaths can, can can do the work. Now, if you have five minutes or ten minutes for deep breathing, even even better. But but a little can can make a difference. And I know, Tal, you're a big advocate of uh, positive psychology. Like, what exactly is positive positive psychology? So, in in a nutshell, positive psychology is about focusing on what works. That's it. Now, what does this actually mean? So let me contrast it with traditional psychology. So traditional psychology, let's say I go to a traditional therapist. Uh, The first question that she's likely to ask me is, Tal, what's wrong? What's what's not going well in your life? Um, If I go, if my wife and I go to a couple's counselor, the first question of a traditional uh, therapist would be, uh, what's not working in your relationship? What's not going well? Or uh, if uh, a consultant, an organizational behaviorist comes into my company, the first question will be, you know, what's not working in your uh, department? What are your weaknesses as a manager, as a leader? So that's traditional psychology for you. Positive psychology uh, takes a different approach. So a positive psychologist would would begin by asking uh, me personally, tell what's working in your life, what's going well? Or my, my, my wife and I would be asked, uh, what's, what's working in your relationship? What's going well in your relationship? Or uh, a consultant would begin by asking, uh, what's going well in your department? What are your strengths as a leader? In other words, focusing on what works. More and more research is showing that when we start with these questions, whether it's about our, our personal life, our interpersonal life, or about our organizational lives, uh, we fulfill much more of uh, of our potential again in individual relational or organizational potential it's not about ignoring the problems at the same time it's about also not ignoring the things that are going well and how does say positive psychology differ from say other self-help methods um primarily in terms of the focus on on research. So, for instance, you know, I talked about asking questions. So we know today that a person before going to bed, uh, asking uh, him or herself the very simple question, what am I grateful for? Which automatically focuses us on the positive. So what worked for me today, for instance? Uh, People who do it on a regular basis um, are happier, more optimistic, more likely to achieve their goals, more successful, more generous, they're kinder toward other people, and they're physically healthier. So it strengthens their immune system. Now, we know that from research. Um, Now, one could argue and say, okay, so Oprah talked about uh, uh, gratitude and and the importance of it. There are self-help books written before there was research on on gratitude, and and, and that's true. And a lot of the things that positive psychology advocates – uh, are things that have been talked about for for years. You know, they're they're common sense, in fact. However, there are also many seemingly commonsensical ideas that positive psychology, that research in this field, has shown that are actually detrimental. Let me give you one 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 very simple and very common mistake that many of the self help books advocate, and that is to visualize success. So. I can't even count the number of times that I was told, whether it was as an athlete when I was younger uh, or a little later as a, as, as, as a student uh, or as a professional, just imagine yourself successful. See yourself getting that A. Uh, see yourself standing on the podium and, and getting the medal. Um, now, it turns out that people who do that, who focus on success, who imagine success, 
are not only less successful, they're also more frustrated as students or athletes or professionals. Now, we wouldn't have known that had we not conducted research. Today we know, and this is thanks to research, for example, by Shelley Taylor, who's a professor at UCLA, um, we know that imagining success is good if you also imagine the journey on your way to success. So it's not about imagining the A, it's about imagining yourself sitting down in a library, interacting with your uh, you know, school buddies, and eventually getting that A. Or it's about seeing yourself uh, uh, you know, kicking the ball over and over again, uh, and then seeing yourself winning the, uh, um, uh, the match. So it's about focusing on the journey and the destination. And again, we know this because there is research that, that taught us this. And is positive psychology, is it just about making people happy or, or is it something else? Uh, it's about much more than that. So yes, it is also about helping people become happier, but it's not happier in the um, you know, superficial, only you know, hedonistic sense of just having more positive emotions. Uh, when we talk about happiness, we're talking about, yes, positive emotions and also a life of meaning, uh, you know, more of a, a spiritual existence, not necessarily in a religious sense, but, you know, in a sense of having a sense of purpose. Um, we, we're, we're also talking about uh, physical well-being. We're talking about, you know, intellectual well-being. Um, so we're talking about uh, interpersonal well-being. We're talking about these components of, of a happy life. So, yes, it is about leading a, a happier life. Uh, at the same time, what more and more research has found is that when we increase levels of well-being or when we improve people's relationships or when we help them focus on what is working in their life, or when we get people to be more grateful for what they have, it's not just about making them happier. It's also about helping them better deal with difficulties when these arise. Again, given that we're, we're, we're not psychopaths and we're not dead, we will experience hardships and difficulties. We will uh, go through challenging times. We will fail if we put ourselves on, on the line enough. Um, and positive psychology helps us better deal with failures, with hardships, with painful emotions. In other words, one way to look at it is to think about it as the um, psychological immune system. What does this mean? So if, if we have a, a strong physical immune system, it doesn't mean we don't get sick. It just means we get sick less often. And when we do get sick, we uh, recover more promptly. A strong psychological immune system doesn't mean we don't uh, uh, get sad or upset or, or, or it doesn't mean we don't fail. It just means when we do get sad or, or, or upset or fail, we recover more promptly. And this, this is what positive psychology does. So yes, it makes us happier and it also strengthens our psychological immune system. So is it the same as positive thinking, Tyler? Um, no, because um, positive thinking basically um, suggests that, you know, if, if we think positively, you know, we'll be happier or more successful and just uh, think that you'll you know, become a, a great uh, lawyer, you know, and, and that is what will bring success. And this is the secret to the good life. Well, it turns out that just thinking about uh, uh, success, just thinking positively is, is actually 
in the long term too many people harmful. What we need is, is realistic thinking, not positive thinking. And what positive psychology advocates is, is really being in touch with, with reality. And that means that if I'm going through a hard time, if, if I just experienced a loss or a, a deep disappointment, you know, positive thinking is not the answer. The answer is to cry or to write about it or to talk about it. Um, uh, at other times, you know, if I'm also, for example, imagining the journey, then yes, then positive uh, uh, thinking can be helpful. So like say if a person has a negative experience in their workplace or even in their life, this is kind of, it's uh, giving you a, a stronger support in that circumstance? Tell yes, or? very much so. So it's about giving you a strong support. It's, it's also about, um, uh, it's very much encouraged, you know, positive psychology, as I said earlier, one of the best predictors of happiness is relationships. So it very much encourages you to, to reach out. You know, we, we, you know, no man is an island. We don't need to do it uh, uh, all alone. And how could positive psychology be applied to somebody, say, who say is in a place of intense suffering in their yeah. lives at the moment? So you see, positive psychology is not a, a panacea. It's not, um, uh, you know, one-stop shop where you can get all your needs met. And w one of the needs that that are not met by positive psychology is, you know, when someone goes through a very, you know, very hard time for a long time, because you know we all experience uh, very hard times, but usually they are. Um, they're confined, you know. We have a hard, you know, a terrible day, or you know, the you know, we the worst breakup, and you know, we're we're out of it for a week or even a month. Th these are natural and they're fine, and you know, we can give ourselves the permission to be human, cry, write about it, talk about it. You know, you know, you're fine. But when someone is depressed, you know, and and someone is 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 experiencing um, real sadness and hopelessness, which is one of the uh, main definitions of, of depression, um, then um, I would advise to venture out of positive psychology, then go to you know, conventional therapy or in, in more extreme cases, medication. Um, unfortunately, you know, positive psychology doesn't have all, all the answers. Um, having said that, one of the things that we're seeing more and more of is that conventional uh, therapists, so psychologists are also using positive psychological tools, meaning they um, they treat in a conventional way, whether it's psychodynamic, psychoanalytic, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, and for example, they're adding positive questions to the mix. So they would ask, you know, so what went well this week, or uh, what are you really excited about? Or uh, let's do some visualization exercises where we visualize the journey and the outcome in a therapeutic context. So positive psychology uh, and related fields are entering conventional uh, psychology, which is a great thing because they can really help. And tell me, tell about optimism and learned helplessness. Like, how does this apply in positive psychology? Yeah, so you know, the, the, um, the founder of the field of positive psychology, Marty Seligman, um, researched uh, both learned helplessness and optimism and um, learned helplessness is the the, the idea that um, I'm in a certain predicament and I can't get out of it and that is uh, it turns out to be a, a very strong pr predictor of depression because you know the difference between depression and sadness is that um, when someone is just sad you know, somewhere in the back of their minds or in the, the front of their minds, they know that this too shall pass. Whereas when there is sadness 
with hopelessness, um, that, that, that becomes a lot closer to depression, especially if it persists for, uh, uh, for a longer time, so for months rather than days or, or weeks. Um, and um, what, what, what positive psychology talks about a lot, uh, what many of the interventions talk about a lot in terms of dealing with learned helplessness is focusing on action. So very often when it comes to bringing about change, uh, action um, brings about is likely to bring about more change than, uh, than than just words or just thinking. And let let me give you a concrete example. So you know I may really be feeling down, and the best thing for me may be to just stay at home, vegetate in front of the TV, and you know eat popcorn and cry. Um, however, it may be helpful in some cases to go out and dance. You know to fake it till I make it. Uh, you know, to go out with my best friends and have fun, and that very often can get me out of my uh, of my miserable predicament. And it's 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 often the case that we can uh, act ourselves out of uh, of certain uh, of of certain feelings. Again, not in extreme cases when then we 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 may need uh, professional help, but in many other cases, yes. And where does this learned helplessness come from? Uh, it it comes from um, from past experiences. You know, as its name suggests, it's something we learn. So, uh, you know, I'll give you the you know the the, the extreme example. Um, you know, let's say you had a a, a kid, a five year old who's uh, abused by by his parents, and uh, you know that kid learns that no matter what he does, you know he'll be shouted at and 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 put down. And no matter how nice he is and how good he is, you know, you'll still, you know, when, when the parent is, you know, home drunk or whatever, that, you know, he learns that it doesn't matter what he does. He will always be punished. He will always be abused and oppressed. And, um, and then, you know, by the time he's 10, um, this has become so, so much part of his uh, psyche that it very often stays with him for you know for years unless unless he does he, unless he works on it through uh, you know therapy for example or sometimes medication so it, it does come and, and and unfortunately there are, there are many cases which you know fortunately are not that, not that extreme but we very often um, learn to be helpless about many of the things that we do um, that we do in life and 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 that belief can be um taken in at a, at a very young age when we don't have the tools to uh to dispute that particular belief and you know it can be something like uh, you know I'm not good at math you know and that's a form of helplessness around uh mathematics and you know it's it's something that I may may have heard from a teacher or it's something that I may have uh, you know read in the you know some newspaper column that talked about girls are not good at math, um, and 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 that becomes uh, embedded, internalized, um, and very often affects us for for years to come. And like I think you mentioned on therapy, there as a way to unlearn that helplessness. And is there any other way, maybe say outside of therapy? To yes. Yeah, so 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 there are ways. Again, not if we go to the uh, extreme. Uh, learned helplessness, but but if it's not if it's not extreme, we can do a lot of work by ourselves. Um, so there's a wonderful book by a professor again at UCLA, 
Jeffrey Schwartz and what uh, Jeffrey Schwartz has uh, has done it's it's a book which is called you are not your brain um, he, he talks about how we can literally rewire neural pathways because uh, learned helplessness or uh, or uh, trauma or um, or obsessive compulsive disorder are very often uh, or not very often are always uh, manifested as particular neural pathways and we can rewire our brain by uh, acting uh, differently on a consistent basis so you know for example if I've uh, you know learned that I you know cannot do math then if I, I keep on studying and I keep on putting myself on the line and taking more and more tests after a while I'll start to succeed a little bit more and that will lead me to more success over time and more and more and so on. And uh, if I practice enough, you know, I get over my, my learned helplessness when it comes to math. Um, same in, in, in virtually any other area in my life. You know, if, if we talk about obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, if I create an alternative neural pathway where I prevent myself from, you know, checking the door for the 50th time, uh, and instead, uh, you know, I listen to music. I create an alternative neural pathway, and over time, can overcome my my uh, OCD. Great. So it sounds, Tal, that by by with practice and by taking action, is it's a great way to to overcome. Yes, practice. you know, here as well, action is a lot louder than words. It's not enough to just understand that I need to bring about change. It's important to act in the way that I want to change. And initially it may be faking it, but ultimately if we act enough in a particular direction, that direction then becomes uh, second nature. Neural pathways are, are being formed. That's great, Hal. Thank you so much. And finally, would you have any tips for anybody listening in who are looking to be happier in their lives? Yeah, I mean, my, my, my tips are, uh, you know, commonsensical, but as, as Voltaire French philosopher once said, common sense is not so common. So to bring that common sense and make it more common in your life, you know, spend quality time with people you care about and who care about you. Uh, exercise regularly at least 30 minutes three times a week uh, of your favorite sport. It can be anything. Um, uh, express gratitude on a regular basis. Don't take for granted what you, what you already have. And uh, and find that mindful time every day. It could be sitting down and meditating, or uh, it could be you know just sitting and writing, but just doing that and being mindful of what you're doing. That's great, Tal. Thank you so much. And if anybody wanted to find out more about your work, how could they do it? Well, I have a website which is uh, myname.com. It's talbenshahar.com. Um, and uh, I've also just uh, launched uh, an online TV channel called Happier TV. So it's happier.tv. And uh, many of the ideas that I, that, that I uh, research and, 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 and look at from positive psychology, I present there in an accessible and hopefully fun way. That's great, Tal. Thanks so much for your time today, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you, I did too. Great, Tal. Thank you very much. And like that will be, like, I'll I'll let you know when it is online, so you want may like to share with other people as well. So uh, it probably be in the next couple of weeks. Yes, please. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you too, Tal. Bye bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye.